publishing a book is a victory, but it's not the end. After you sweep up the confetti and wash the champagne flutes, what's next? Authoring Onward is the podcast about those steps after your first publication. Going from published author to having a long-term writing career. And that has no clear endpoint and plenty of ups and downs. But telling stories for the long-term is so, so worth it. Sit back, listen, and together, let's author Onward. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Authoring Onward. I'm Connie B. Dowell, and today we have a great interview with Julie Carrick Dalton about writing your passion into your fiction. Um, And in her case, she writes stories that deal with, um, in different ways, climate issues. And so we talk a lot about those stories. Uh, We talked about some of the benefits of writing your passion, finding a passion, and how you would incorporate that into a story format, um, and some of the challenges along the way. So we had a really great chat that I think you will enjoy a lot. Before we jump in, though, I do have like a bunch of announcements Um, here as we are wrapping up 2022 and wrapping up not quite there yet. We've still got at least one more episode to go, um, but almost to the end of the autumn season for authoring onward. So starting with my announcements, I have a new novelette coming out on Tuesday. So the 13th, uh, if you're listening to this later, it may already be out. Calamity at the Christmas concert. If you are looking for something cozy and Christmassy and a little bit murdery to read. Um, it's it's a very easy one afternoon kind of a read to get yourself a glass of mulled wine or a cup of tea or something and just have a cozy time. So my bookmobile driver sleuth, Millie Monroe, attends a Christmas concert, which is interrupted when all four members of a string quartet collapse on stage and one of them does not survive the night. And you will just have to see how that plays out. There are, you know, Christmas traditions and new traditions. There are musicians with secrets and lots of fun. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, then go ahead and order that link in the show notes. Um, You can pre-order now or if it is after Tuesday, you can order and read instantly on Kindle. And for my second announcement is sort of a a pre-announcement. I'm hoping next week to be able to announce the updated version of the Messy Author Planner with 2023 dates. So hopefully that's coming very soon um, and I will let you guys know about it. So now moving on to Joy who has um, quite a few announcements. She's got some openings in her book coaching schedule starting in late January. That's at mybookcoachrocks.com, link also in the show notes. And she has a writer wellness gift pack going up for sale on her website next week, um, joyeheld.com. And finally, she's holding a drawing for a set of bookmark magnets and 
uh, also including a cute office magnet that says, sometimes the best part of my job is that the chair swivels. Um, So that's a Google form. I'm not going to even attempt to read it out because of the long string of numbers, but link as always in the show notes of this episode, which can be found at authoringonward.com. So now let's move on to the interview with Julie. Well, today on the podcast, Joy and I are talking to Julie Carrick-Dalton. Welcome to the show, Julie. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Welcome, Uh, Julie. Yeah, we're so excited to chat with you um, about your writing, about um, your commitments to climate issues, and especially because I love bees. Um, To explain a little bit more about how those (laughs) connect, would you like to tell our listeners a bit about yourself and your writing. Sure, thank you. So um, I am a mother of four. I live in Boston and I divide my time between Boston and rural New Hampshire, where about 14 years ago, I started farming a piece of land in New Hampshire. and I also have been a beekeeper in the past. At the moment, I am in, in, in between hives. I'm getting a new hive in April. But there, um, as a novelist, uh, I never intended to start writing about climate issues. It was never a goal to sit down and write about climate change in fiction. But all the stories that I wanted to write, these themes kept bubbling up to the surface. And it took me a while to figure it out. But I realized that all of the stories that I wanted to tell are actually manifestations of my own climate anxieties if that makes any sense, they're things that keep me up at night. My first novel, Waiting for the Night Song, is set in rural New Hampshire, and it has to do with how slowly rising temperatures um, are changing the nature of, of an agricultural community, about infestations of you know invasive species, species that are moving out, threatened species. And my new book, um, The Last Beekeeper, which comes out in March, is about the um, threat to our pollinators, which is something I feel because I've, I've lost tens of thousands of bees um, in my hives. And so it's something I take really personally. So it's really just a merging of my two passions of, uh, you know, attention to our natural world and writing. And um, those are the only stories I think I can tell. Yeah. Yeah. So very interesting. Um, And yeah, pollinators are pretty important to do a lot of things in the environment. So sounds like a really exciting, interesting read so so um you you mentioned you didn't intend for um climate issues like when you started writing so if you've been writing for a long time yeah so um i mean i've been writing since i was a little kid my mom actually used to run a puppet theater when i was little and she used to write all of her own scripts and i wrote a script for her when i was 10 which was my first you know dip into the writing world um, and I was a journalist um, from my whole career. I've written for, you know, the Boston Globe, Business Week, a lot of small publications, parenting magazines. So I was always writing, but I was telling other people's stories most of my career. I was interviewing people and sharing their stories. Uh, after my third child was born, um, I went freelance and I was writing at home and I started really wanting to tell my own story. So I went back to school for creative writing, got a master's and started you know, telling my own stories and the 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 climate themes um, didn't emerge right away. I started the the first novel, Waiting for the Night Song, started out as a, as a you know mystery about two little girls who cover up a crime on their children and the ramifications it has on their lives. And what happened? The story morphed into a story about climate because when the women came home, you know, as adults, 
to kind of face the comeuppance of this bad thing they did when they were kids, the community had changed. And the community had changed because in my growing region in New Hampshire, the temperature has gone up by four degrees in the summer. So it just, it, it kept, I kept confronting climate and all the stories that I was telling. It just presented itself. So um, I think I got my training as a journalist about how to notice things, how to do research, how to tell stories and how to find the details that make stories matter. But it wasn't until I really focused on fiction that I think I found my voice as a writer. Mm -hmm. Um, Julie, what kind of responses do you get from readers? Uh, oh, that's a great question. So I get really varied responses. There are, you know, when you tell a story, like for me, I hope people pick up on the climate things, themes. But when you tell a story, it's really got to be about the story. It's got to be about the characters, the relationships, and the emotional attachment that the readers, you know, gain. And so some people will write to me and say, you know, in my first book, the main character's name was Katie. And they would say, I love Katie's relationship with her best friend or the way she interacted with nature as a child. And some people will write to me and only want to talk about the climate issues. They want to know about this invasive beetle in New Hampshire. They want to know about our pollinators. And so it touches different people different ways. Um, my favorite review I ever got was from a blogger that was a very small blog. It didn't have a huge readership, but the um, person started out the review saying, I don't really pay much attention to climate change. I don't watch the news and I'm not interested in politics. So it was really bracing for a scathing review of my book. And then, she, but she went on and said, but I really cared about the characters in this book. Like I cared about what happened to them. I cared about the relationships and it, and it, it mattered to me what they cared about. And so by the end of the book, I found that I now care about climate change. And that to me was the greatest compliment I've ever gotten as a writer. That mattered more to me than the reviews and some of the bigger publications. So I hope that those themes touch people, you know, on underneath, but it does in the, you know, it always has to be about the storytelling and the characters first. Julie, that was a really great answer. Um, and can you share in any way one or two tips for other authors how you make, uh, how you create characters that authors, sorry, that readers will uh, care about, like that reviewer mentioned? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I think part of it is that I incorporate parts of myself in a lot of my characters, so I feel very attached to them personally as I'm writing them. But I'll give you a good example. In my first book, Waiting for the Night Song, in the first chapter, my character is a forestry researcher, and she's trying to prove that an invasive beetle has moved into New Hampshire, but no one believes her. So we find her in the first chapter on top of a mountain, trying to collecting data and samples. And she picks up a rock, a granite rock. New Hampshire is known for its granite. It's the granite state. And she um, she licks the rock, which is not something you think someone should do is lick a rock. But the reason is granite, when it's wet, the colors show more vibrantly, deeper in the rock. You see veins in the granite, you see colors, you see iridescences showing. And that is, that's who she is. It's like she sees deeply into nature. She connects with it. She tastes it like it's part of all of her senses. And that little moment resonated with a lot of people. People have always asked me that. They're like, do you lick rocks? And I'm like, I don't actually lick rocks, but I do see deeply into you know the natural world around me. And so my characters do. And those little tiny details, it was one sentence in the book, but I probably had more people comment on that one sentence about that character than any other, you know, any other sentence in the book. Yes, wonderful answer. Details matter when we're writing stories. Wonderful, thank you. 
Yeah, absolutely. That is a fantastic little detail. And I bet you get a lot of do you like rocks questions. It's fun. Okay, so we didn't plan it this way, but um, it's interesting for listeners that this dovetails really well with an interview we did a couple of weeks ago with Valerie about creating deep settings and depicting those settings and those the natural world in your story. So I imagine that setting and that change in setting over time would be really important in your work. Yeah, it really is. And it matters to me personally, you know, the setting that I live in and it matters to my characters, the setting that they live in. And one of the things I hope for with my books is that my characters will fall in love with uh, the setting of my books, but also, the, you know, their own settings, you know, their own natural world, because I think that we need to fall in love with nature before we're going to be willing to fight for it. So if you if you recognize the threats to, you know, to our environment, you're going to pay more attention to your behavior in the world and and, you know, want to make a change. And I think if we if we don't love nature and if we don't have hope that we can make a difference, there's nothing to fight for. So, you know, I do hope in a small way that it, it opens people's eyes to, to just loving what's still left instead of only mourning the things we've lost. It's really easy to grieve all the things we've mm -hmm. lost because we've lost a lot, but there's so much left and we need to remember to love and be passionate about what's still here so we don't lose that too. Yeah. Great advice. Yeah. So um, a big part of why we wanted to have you on the show was to talk about like incorporating your passion into your fiction, um, which is something that, you know, you maybe didn't intentionally set out to do at first, but it's become this really important part of your work. So um, what are maybe some, some takeaways that listeners can have for like benefits of incorporating your passion or how to look for those passions to put into their fiction? Yeah, so I think it's easier to write about things that you care about, for one thing. And I don't think you you have to exclusively write about that. I think it's great to step outside mm -hmm. of your comfort zone. But for me, I have an emotional attachment to what I'm writing about. So I have this deep well of resources to draw on when I'm writing. I also think I see the world through this lens. You know, when I go for a walk, I notice textures. I notice tree bark. I notice if there's, you know, seems to be blight on a particular tree when I'm going for a walk. And we all see the world a little bit differently. You know, there are people who are attuned to the, you know, the stars, to this night sky. There are people who are attuned to technology in the world and they see the world through these lenses. And that's a really unique perspective. All of those perspectives are unique. There's some people who are attuned with animals more that they are very passionate about how they interact with, you know, their pets or with, you know, with wildlife. And that brings something to the reader because it might not be the way they see the world. I don't see the world through technology. I have a really hard time with technology, but I appreciate seeing through somebody else's eyes. So I think just being attuned to what are the things you notice in the world and maybe giving your character that lens. Um, and, and that offers that lens to your reader, which can be a gift. What a great answer, huh, Connie? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that is a great answer. And it does, it brings so much more, I think, to stories. You can tell when the writer is really taking that true life experience and that true life way that they see the world and putting it into a story. Um, so yeah, there, I can see there's a lot of benefits. It makes you more passionate about the story you're telling and that's gonna come through and make your, your writing life a little easier. Um, are there any challenges associated with writing and publishing something um, that is so, a piece of fiction that's so tied to something you're passionate about? Yeah, I, I think there is. Um, 
that you, you want to get it right. I mean, you always want to get it right, but I feel like I have an investment, an emotional investment in getting things right. So when I'm, you know, my stories are fiction. They have speculative elements that I introduce things that aren't, that haven't actually happened sometimes. You know, the last beekeeper is set in the near future and it is about the, um, I set in place a situation that our pollinators collapse more quickly than we're anticipating. And it sets the world into an agricultural and economic crisis. Um, now, obviously that hasn't happened, but could it? Sure. So I wanted to make sure the science was right. So I engaged beekeepers and you know professors mm -hmm. to help me find a way to make this a plausible scenario that the, that the pollinators could collapse more quickly in this way that I've set up. Because I don't wanna get the science wrong. I don't wanna alienate the science community because if I tell a story and the science in it, even if it's speculative science, if it's not logical and doesn't make sense, I lose credibility when I'm telling the story. You know, the, all those things I hope for, the things I want people to care about, the things I want people to maybe feel moved to take action on, I would lose credibility if I'm not telling it in an authentic way. So I feel a lot of pressure and, a, you know, a burden. It's not, if I'm telling a romance, I can tell, you know, just, and it's just a romance set in a city, I can tell it however I want. And the characters can do whatever they want. But when I'm hinging all of it on science, I, I need to get it right. And so that that is something that keeps me up at night. Like, did I get it right? And running it by the scientists and activists to make sure I'm telling a story that is authentic. That's the journalist in you coming out. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I have a, a similar pattern. I had a journalism degree for years and years and years and then went freelance and now I do fiction and those, um, is that right, word count, deadline, those journalism habits, they don't die easily. <laughs> I 100% agree with you. Yeah, yeah. Is it a clean manuscript? <laughs> so, yeah. Do more research than I need. No, I need to have space for it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you can't write a retraction in a book. Not that you ever <laughs> want to do that in journalism either. But you, yeah, once, exactly. exactly. Once you get it out there, it's out there. Um, yeah, so it's, it is, it. that is probably the, to me, the hardest part is knowing that there's going to be an audience out there that's fact checking me. Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely something, and especially for for something like this, which is an ongoing issue that you want to get especially right. I mean, I know I... I've sweated a lot of details in my historical work uh, and making sure that that is correct. But if I got some, you know, I've got a few bloopers that I've shared with readers that are just kind of funny, but they don't have the same real world impact. Yeah, no, it, it is definitely, it's a lot of pressure because, you know, with fiction, yes, we are making up the story, mm -hmm. but we still want, there's, but there's truth in fiction, right? Like even the, the part you make up, there's like emotional truth in fiction mm -hmm. that sometimes can't be conveyed with journalism because you're you're bound by the facts and by the things that have already happened whereas you can expand on the truth in fiction by digging deeper into emotional things and and making the the, the plot fit the emotional arc you're writing which is sort of the opposite of journalism um and so i feel like you you're balancing that you're balancing the emotional truth and the facts in fiction, um, which is a, a tricky, if you choose to go that path, it's a tricky line to walk. But it's an awesome explanation because I don't know about you, but I find fiction very liberating from my journalism work, just for the reason you explained right there. I can, I, I, I find that there's, um, there's opportunities for me, that, you know, um, to, 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 make up what might happen rather than just report, 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 which I loved, 
but it was time to move on. So, but yeah, I find the fiction kind of liberating and that my journalism uh, judge that's always sitting on my shoulder, whether regardless of what um, I'm writing, um, does have to take a time out. You know, I do have to put him, her in the corner so that I can, you know, um, work on, get the, get the fiction right. Yeah, and going back to that blogger who wrote that review about my book, I suspected that if she had watched a, a documentary or read a book about climate science, maybe it wouldn't have changed her mind. It was the characters and the, the you know, the emotional arc of my characters that moved her because she cared about the characters and was seeing through their eyes. And that's what changed. I don't think you, you know, I think there's brilliant journalism that can 100% do that, but not all. And people don't always seek it out either. There are people who just do don't choose to you know, ingest media that way. They choose stories. And so as a, the responsibility as a storyteller is to, you know, to, to share emotional truths, I think. Um, with what a wonderful way to bring that conversation and topic full circle. Excellent, Julie. Wonderful. <laughs> Thanks. Absolutely. Um, so Joy, uh, I don't know if we've covered, uh, I know you've got a few questions we haven't covered. Um, well, I always like to ask um, authors, writers, what kind of things they do uh, away from the desk, maybe, to keep them healthy, happy, you know, kind of wellness ideas that keep you juicy and creative and productive. Do you have anything, one or two things that you do on a regular basis that um, sustain your career as a, a, an author? Yeah, well, I really like being outside, um, you know, going for walks. I walk my dog several times a day. Um, most of the year I live in the city, um, in Boston, I live in an apartment downtown, um, but I live near a great park near um, Boston Common, if you're familiar with Boston. And even in the city, there's a lot of nature um, around and there's, you know, the river. Um, but in the summer, um, I had mentioned I farm a piece of land of rural New Hampshire. I'm in, in just entrenched in nature in the summer and I feel much more in tune with myself when I'm there. So I, I swim a lot in the lake, I walk in the woods and I do a lot of, I grow a lot of food. I have a pollinator garden um, where I grow plants that are like native species that attract pollinators and promote their, um, you know, their sustainability in the region. So kind of getting my hands dirty um, is helps. Um, but I also feel like I need to move even when I'm like right I'm in the I'm in my apartment right now in Boston um and uh I know we're on audio on the podcast but if you could see me uh you wouldn't see it but just off camera is a hula hoop because I keep a hula hoop in my writing office and sometimes in between writing I get up and I'm an avid hula hooper and I have no explanation for why but I love like it makes you move it makes you, it, um, it's also this rhythmic kind of hypnotic meditative thing that you can think while you're doing it. You can listen to music or a podcast, um, but it makes your body move um, instead of sitting in the chair the whole time. So um, as ridiculous as it sounds, I am a big believer in keeping a hula hoop just off camera um, for when you need to kind of shake things up a little bit. That is awesome. I'm going out for a hula hoop. <laughs> <laughs> right now I highly recommend it let me if you, if you do it let me know I want to hear how it works for you <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I could keep it uh, going for very long nowadays I used to like it as a kid but yeah well um before we before my other question um 
What do you recommend for bee stings? <laughs> for bee stings? Wow. I mean, meat tenderizer, just like, you know, like baking soda, oh. you know, putting cool water on. I mean, obviously you need to get, need to get the stinger out um, before anything. Um, if you're sensitive to them, antihistamines, Benadryl. Um, there's also, I, I don't know if you know this, but there's a lot of uh, uh, healing qualities about bee venom that's actually good for you. And if you're not allergic, obviously, um, you know, it helps with arthritis and inflammation and and they've been experimenting with it and for different, you know, disease treatments, which I think is oh. fascinating. So, so um, yeah, it's not never good to get bee stings. They don't feel great, but is if you're not allergic, don't panic. <laughs> Well, the reason I ask is because it hasn't been too long ago that I stumbled onto, literally walked onto a yellow jacket nest. Oh, no. And I got stung six times all at once, and I am allergic. Oh, oh and, no. Okay, that's and not it good. it went on for weeks and weeks and weeks for me. So you mentioned all the things that I tried, but I finally did end up in the emergency room. Yeah, you know what? Sometimes that's where you need to go. <laughs> That's what finally happened. Well, you know, it's funny talking about yellow jackets. I, you know, my book, The Last Beekeeper, focuses on honeybees and about what happens when we lose them. But in the acknowledgments of my book, I, I write about how I, I kind of think is of honeybees as like a gateway pollinator to attract people to pay attention to pollinators because nobody likes yellow jackets. Yeah. Nobody likes wasps. Nobody wants flies and mosquitoes around. But they're they're pollinators too, and they're doing the work too, and we need them all. So I feel like the honeybees are the poster child of the pollinator world, you know, and the butterflies maybe. That people, you know, we see um, value in them. They make honey, which we like. We know that they travel around in hives, pollinating our big farms. They're cute. They're fuzzy. They make great cartoon characters. You know, there's so much to love about a bee. They make wax. They smell good. But all those other pollinators, you know, we could. Yeah. You know, nobody wants the wasps around. But so I always joke with people that yes. Save the bees, but like save the rest of them too. <laughs> you know, oh, that's, all brilliant. Of them. that's brilliant, Julie. Well, um, Connie and I want to know what's next for you. Um, you mentioned a book that you are working on. Is that what? Have you mentioned the title of that one yet? Or did no. You so it's interesting. So I do have a. I have just recently signed a contract for two more books coming out from um, Tour Forge Macmillan. So I'm very excited about that. So The Last Beekeeper, my second book, comes out in March. But the third book that I have under contract, I'm not sure what the title of the book is. I'm going to tell you what I think they are. So this might not be what the book It's either going to be In the Shadow Forest or The Forest Becomes Her. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the it's a kind of a little, I've taken a little sidestep. It's again, it's about climate. It's, it hinges on um, a recently deforested tract of land that is um, developed into a housing development. And it's about three women. They're multi-generational as 11 year old, 30 something and a 50 something woman who all have an attachment to this piece of land and are in different ways kind of haunted by the forest that no longer exists there. And so it's about the way, what we lose when we lose a forest, it's beyond just the trees and the visuals of like what we lose on a deeper level when we lose a forest. And it's about these three women's different attachment to the land. So I don't know, in the shadow forest, the forest becomes her, I don't know, I'm playing with it. If you have any great ideas, let me know. (laughs) Love it. Yeah, love it. So they're both sound really interesting titles. Um, And it sounds like a really interesting book. Um, so do you have any parting thoughts you'd like to share with listeners? Um, well, I guess for me, you know, I, I was a, 
I was working on fiction for a very long time before it took me a long time to finish that first book, 13 years to write the first book. And then there's that process of getting the agent. It took me a year to sell the book after I got an agent. And my parting words would be, don't give up. If you believe in the book you're writing or whatever it is you're doing, whether it's, you know, activism or other arts or, you know, whatever your passion is, if it doesn't happen right away and you really believe in it, don't give up. Because for me, it's been a long journey and I don't regret it any of those, you know, stumbles along the way to, um, to be where I am right now. So yeah, keep at it. Yeah. Great parting words. And had some similar words from a lot of our, our guests recently. So just take the all the weight of all the authors telling you to keep at it, keep trying, keep learning, keep pivoting, keep going. Yeah. Um, so would you like to share with listeners where we can find you and everything you do online? Sure. So I have a website, um, juliecarrickdalton.com. So it's julie, C-A-R-R-I-C-K, Dalton.com. Um, so I, all my links are in there. I'm also on Instagram at Julie C. Dalton. And I'm on Twitter, if Twitter still exists, um, at yeah. Julie cardalt so c-a-r-d-a-l-t cardalt um so you know find me there reach out i'd love to hear from people um hear what you think about the books or if you're writing in a similar category or genre i'd love to hear what you're doing and i really appreciate you having me on the show today this has been really fun well thanks for coming on and i will have um links to your site and the show notes people can come and learn more about you and what you do and best of luck with your new hive thank you yeah this is wonderful, Julie. Thank you. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. So I, I encourage you to go check out all of Julie's stuff. I'm link in the show notes as always at authoringonword.com and you can check out Julie's website and her book that's out now and her book that's coming out soon. Um, very excited for that one. Big fan of bees. So very excited for that one. And of course, you can check out the links to the stuff I mentioned in the intro um, to Calamity at the Christmas concert, um, to links to Joy's coaching availability, um, links to my own coaching and editing services, um, links to Joy's giveaway that's coming very soon um, and to her website where she will soon have a new Rider Wellness pack up. So until next week, happy writing! <laughs>